Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. And as always, Hi. I am here with... I am Don <laughs> Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome everyone. Hello. And Hello. we have a very special guest today as well. We're talking about a topic I know you, yourself, were very interested in. We're talking about rematriation and we have with us... Kristen Cormick to talk about it. Kristen's a friend of mine and she's an activist in environmental and native communities and CEO of a company in Colorado. And then she's involved with the uh, rematriation movement. So Kristen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is... Wait. I didn't mean to get drunk, Kristen. I was just trying to give you your applause. You're a proper oh. dude. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not used to getting applause, so I, that's that's new for me. <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and Dawn, certainly, uh, you know, uh, guide this along because this is something that was uh, really special to you, is um, we want to talk about rematriation. It's something that I, I heard about through Dawn, and then knowing that this was a, you know, tied to Native uh, community issues, I reached out to you about it. Um, can you... Talk to us about, maybe just for the listeners, just introduce what it is and then how you became involved with it. So I'm from Oklahoma originally. And in Oklahoma, there was a movement about six years ago. And just to be very, very clear, I am involved in lots of different groups. I'm not particularly assigned to any one group. So a lot of groups sort of speak from the voice of what their particular group is mm -hmm. or their tribe or their culture, you know, so it is, it tends to be a little bit more nuanced across the broad spectrum of native communities. Um, my particular involvement is kind of like who needs me where, when I have time, I'll kind of insert myself as needed. Um, or I'll just kind of connect with my different little communities here and there that I'm, that I take part in. Um, but about six years ago in the Oklahoma area, particularly the, between Oklahoma city and Tulsa, there's a like 20 different tribes. The, Oklahoma has 40 plus tribes yeah. just in the state. And, but there's about 20 that have enough of a population that they tend to be a little more organized. And a group of, of women got together uh, from the Osage tribe, Creek, um, Lenape, Delaware, Cherokee, and just kind of were like, something's missing. And it, and our voices is, is missing, even within our own tribes. Um, how do we kind, how do we build this back in a way that's healthy, but also we don't really fit in with kind of this third wave feminism. Cause we don't really, you know, we still like men and we still believe that men have purpose, <laughs> have a purpose. <laughs> Well, I think that fits in with third wave feminism too, but but that's a matter of perspective, definitely, I suppose. There's definitely a a sect, a very loud sect of third wave feminism that sort of tends to promote that. So this was their way of like, how do we define this in a way that it kind of applies more to like native culture without bringing in the radicalism? Um, and can, that, can I, I can I follow up just a little bit on that? Because I one of the things that I'm curious about. Um, so we'll talk about the feminism aspect too, but also from a personal standpoint, I'm curious about this, the tribal nature of it. So when you say these, the, the voices in the tribe, what, what kind, what do you, can you say a little more about what you mean by the, the voices of the women in the tribe had not been heard in these different tribes in the Lenape and the Cherokee and the, and the different, uh, tribes that are in the area? What was your experience? How did that, how did that come about? And why do you think that was? Well, every tribe is extremely different. They're structured differently. They have different uh, business structures within the tribe. They have a different way they even refer to their uh, the leader of the tribe. Some people refer to them as the chief. Some people refer to them as the chairman. Some people refer to them as the governor. 
So it's just really, really different. And every tribe is very dynamic and has their own way of doing things. Um, There's definitely some common threads, but that's something that I think most people don't understand. They just think all natives are set up the same. It's just sort of like a, a, you know, a cut and paste situation across the country. And that is not the case at all. So every tribe has a different culture, a different way of doing things. Um, And they even admit like there's the, just for example, there's the Chickasaw tradition. And then when they get together, they do, they have intertribal traditions. So there's even that, that's kind of how they describe that definition. And they sort of say, these are the traditions we share together. And this is the tradition that we, you know, this is just ours within our tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really important distinction. So as far as representation for women goes, every tribe is very different. Right. Um, some tribes are a little more open to this and having women leaders. And I mean, there's even some tribes that don't allow women to go into sweat um, and not even mm-hmm. every tribe does a sweat. Explain, explain what sweat is for the, for the listeners so they sure. understand. So some tribes do a, a ceremony where it's an opportunity to cleanse and kind of work through your, your, whatever you're going through or uh, sort of release. And it's would be what a lot of tribes or natives would kind of consider church. Cause you go in, you pray, you work through whatever you're working through. You're with community. And then ideally you share a meal afterwards. Um, you have a leader that's in the, in the tent or in the sweat lodge leading the mm-hmm. prayers and leading um, leading the group. Uh, so it's kind of similar in that, in that way that they follow the tradition of there's a leader, there's song, there's prayer. Uh, and then you share a meal together with your community afterwards. So, um, a lot of tribes do that, but there's some tribes who don't let women in the sweat. And then some tribes, the men and women sweat differently. And then other tribes, they all do it together. So it's, it's just very different across the board. Right. Okay. So, so there was, so at least in terms of, you know, with respect to the differences among the tribes, there was a sense by women in different tribes that not enough of the voice was being heard is what I'm, what I'm hearing. Yes. Like not enough of the voice. And, and uh, is that also in the context of, cause I know when you and I had talked uh, when we had first met, you talked about um, the different kinds of native movements that you've been involved in. And so is this something that you experience in terms of, you know, land rights movements, things like that, where maybe those voices hadn't been able to be expressed as much in the, in the more recent movements, I guess is what I'm, what I'm getting at. So still even recently, there wasn't that opportunity. I think that some of the most powerful female uh, tribal voices right now are happening around political in the political realm. You know, we have mm-hmm. the senator from New Mexico, Deb Haaland, and she's incredibly, yes. incredibly powerful and dynamic leader. Uh, we have several local state uh, representatives that are native, especially here in Oklahoma, New Mexico, really all over the country. And all of this has kind of happened in the last 10 years. It was like native Americans just kind of woke up um, and decided this newer generation decided you know, maybe no one's coming, you know, maybe if we want to be heard, we have to write the dialogue and we have to tell people how to treat us. And that's what I think kind of sparked this was we don't like the way we're being represented. We don't have a voice. So maybe we need to step up and stop waiting for someone to do it for us. And maybe we need to do it. So that was where this started was we want to kind of have a little bit of say over how we're represented Mm-hmm. Uh, and it progressed from there. And it's like with anything in any movement, you have a lot of dynamic personalities and ideas. And some people agree with certain aspects of it and other people don't, especially when you have such a broad subject. Right. So I think that's why you have these different groups that kind of peeled out, which is great because it, it definitely addresses the needs of the region better as opposed to just this big overarching sort of set of rules or guidelines or uh, it feels more grassroots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I will, you know, we'll, let's, we'll definitely focus in or zero in more on repatriation specifically, but I do want to ask some more just to flesh out some native issues for, for listeners who 
aren't going to be as familiar with this, haven't kept up, hasn't been as involved, or maybe as aware of them. So in terms of uh, when you're talking about these different movements and regional issues, what kind of um, connection, you know, in Oklahoma, as you, as you mentioned, obviously there are a number of tribes there. And so that kind of interaction is going to be facilitated by that proximity. What about in terms of if, you know, we're tying it back to rematriation movement, in terms of this kind of a national connection, what are you seeing in terms of um, tribal communities throughout the country and different parts of the country connecting? Is it, has it been helping or facilitating more interaction across tribes, across regions? Uh, what, what are you seeing? Absolutely. I think one of the big things that happened for Native Americans across North America and even into other countries, not just North America, was the Standing Rock movement. Um, there's a lot of controversy over it now, and there's a lot of, you know, big media came in and distorted what the message was from pretty early on. But for me personally, and I know a lot of people feel the same way, there was such a disconnect in Native culture and Native people from a generational aspect, from a regional aspect, from a tribal aspect, all the way down to even within their own homes. Mm-hmm. Can you tell, just to make sure, can you tell the listeners what the Standing Rock Movement is? So it's a little complicated, but it started out as a movement for the Standing Rock Tribe. It's a, it's a subgroup of the Sioux Tribe up in North Dakota. And they had land on, the, on this big river. And a pipeline company wanted to put a pipeline right, literally right next to their land, just upriver from where their people lived. And the water that they drank was a main source of this from this river. And pipelines are notorious for leaking. And they would have been right next to it. Uh, it would have affected their, their land and their people significantly. It would have impacted them if something bad happened. Well, there was, they never approved it. And something that people have to understand about tribal culture is one of the big controversies was the Dakota Access Pipeline people were like, well, we held these meetings and they never showed up. And I said, and, but what they didn't understand was they didn't show up because they had already told you no. (laughs) So it wasn't a matter of, you know, whether it was up for discussion, it was that they had asked them early on and they said, no. We don't want you to put it there. You can't put it across our land. And this is, you know, land that belongs to us. We're still fighting with the, with the government over this because this was given to us and it was taken back illegally. We're still discussing it. You can't put it there. Well, the state said, yeah, you can. Well, then the tribe said, then it turned into a bigger fight. And then it turned into a movement where just local activists requested people to come. We're going to, we're going to, camp out here and tell them they can't do this. And we're going to do everything we can to peacefully protest this pipeline because this is our land. Um, It was partially an environmental issue, but really it was more of a, we told you, no, this is our land. You can't put it here, take it somewhere else. And they didn't want to do that. So that, that was the, what the fight was about. Um, And then it kind of got overtaken by the media saying it was like this big environmental movement and it did kind of turn into that at the end, but in the beginning, it was really about land and it was about tribal right and sovereignty of like, this was our agreement. You guys are just walking all over us after we told you no. So people came in from all over the country and started camping out. And every day was really a walk in prayer, especially early on. It wasn't later until it started to get cold and then other people who were non-Indigenous came in, kind of took over the community. The tribes had stepped out because they had told, told everybody to go home. It was getting cold. The winter was going to be brutal. So it's time to pack it up, go home. Um, people didn't listen. And then it kind of went on from there and ended up with the bad reputation it ended up with. But early on, it really was people getting together in ceremony every day, different tribes from all over the country every day, connecting in a way that they had not done for hundreds of years. And it was amazing. And I went up there several times over this, that summer um, because my family is, is, has a story of being disconnected in the late 
1800s, early 1900s of being disconnected from their tribes. My grandmother and her sister grew up in an orphanage. She didn't even meet her mother until she was in her 50s. Um, and by then, so much is lost. Um, and so for my family, we, we've missed, we missed out on growing up with that piece of our family history and sort of that piece of the puzzle. So I was definitely missing that in my life at the time when this happened. And I went up there and it was like something opened up in me that I, I can't even explain. It was like a wound because it was so emotional, but then also it, it was healing at the same time. And every night I would sit around the campfire with different elders from different tribes and we would just talk and they would share stories and they would talk about traditions and why we do the things we do and how we use different herbs to heal. And, you know, even so deep as to go the role of men and women and the, the importance of the balance of the role of the masculine and the feminine energy. And it was so incredible. Um, it, it is, it's, it's a, it's an amazing, you know, that, that culture, those cultural traditions being just ruptured and pulled apart. I think that's an aspect of American history that people really don't understand, but how much of that was just fractured and broken and then spun and thrown in some other direction. But the fact that there is still that energy, that sacred energy, it's, there's, you know, I always tell people there was something about when, you know, when I met you at Talik, well, that there, the energy there was so amazing and so healing um, that just it was a different sensibility. I love um, that you got to experience that on such a micro scale. But take yeah. that, Sean, take that experience and multiply it by a thousand. And that's what Standing Rock was, especially the first like six months. And for people from, I would say, age 60 and younger who had felt this disconnect were sort of given a little piece of that back and sort of brought back into the fold. And then people who even grew up on a reservation or, or within a tribe and had access to the cultures every day and took it for granted were sort of like, hey, I have a, an, I've been given an amazing gift that I never really appreciated or understood. And now I realize that I'm really lucky that even though I looked at it as I had all this taken from me and we were forced on reservation, I still have my family, I still have my culture, and there's all these people that don't. And so it's kind of rewritten the way native a lot of Native people interact with each other. Because before it was always just very cold and kind of exclusive, like, oh, you don't have your card, or you're not Native enough, or your blood quantum is too low, or whatever. Um, and the dialogue around that is changing, which is really important. And that, and I bring that up because that does tie very much back into the rematriation movement. How so? Because before that whole stigma around being quote unquote native enough mm -hmm. is so toxic because at what point do you realize that within a couple of generations, there will be nobody that's native enough. There will be, it will be extinct. That's how you, that's how you disappear people is you become so exclusive that no longer nobody fits in the club. <laughs> so, um, by bringing people who, who authentically want to reconnect and just want to be a part of their own history, um, is really beautiful and, and really powerful and also ensures the long-term viability of the culture. Yeah. One of the, one of the um, definitions that I saw online of rematriation or discussions about what the term rematriation is, is trying to trying to hone in on is contrasting it with repatriation, which of course has been the term um, that we have used to talk about things, items, um, tangible physical objects that were stolen from right. the tribes that are being returned to the tribes. Whereas rematriation more looks at um, culture and wisdom, like indigenous uh, wisdom that used to be passed down from person to person 
um, within the tribes and that that is sort of being returned to the people um, by elders, by his, history, by um, by things being returned, but also by this sort of almost intangible spirit um, that is is feeling uh, this sort of return in Native communities. Um, so it sounds a little bit like what you're saying with this, like within the last 10 years, this, there's been this new energy um, that is taking um, Native politics and, and Native um, interrelations uh, between the tribes as well as the tribes to the outs- out, quote-unquote outside world is sort of taking it in a new direction. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, for me, I'm, I kind of come and go because my life gets busy and I kind of jump into projects and then I jump out for a while and I kind of come back and um, just the, the changes that happen in those short periods of time when I'm uh, busy doing something else and then I come back, I'm like, wow, this is happening so fast and it's amazing. Um, and as with any big movement, things kind of moved forward and then you kind of step back and then you kind of reassess and then you move forward again. Um, And something that I love about the rematriation movement particularly is it's about empowering women in a way that it's sort of, it doesn't diminish anyone else. It it encourages them to create community in a way that I, I haven't always seen a lot of other women groups do. And I'm not saying that they don't, I'm just saying this is just different in the sense that there's such a, a deep connection to a very, a very long past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're just trying to figure it out and they're trying to reconnect to that and share it. And that's really cool. Um, and so that's, I, a, that's a beautiful thing about it as a part of it because I, it's you know, and I, I want to follow up with you about the, the what you learned about the, the balance of stuff about male and female in terms of the cultural traditions, but it's just kind of important to note too that in, in finding this place in women's voices and being, like you say, inclusive and not diminishing, it's important to remember that you know, under these under the system that happened here, you know, the lives of native men were diminished as well. And so you have a, you have a tradition of loss that's there. And so healing both uh, together through, you know, reclaiming these things that uh, women's voices is helpful. And it's good to, um, it's wonderful to hear an awareness. And I think a lot of other cultural movements can really learn from that because it does mean that you have that sort of, no one's being diminished, everyone's being lifted by it. And that's really helpful. Yeah, I do love that. And something that got me, because I think I grew up in, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And I'm very much, I consider myself very much a feminist. And I do think at one point, I was sort of leaning towards the idea of like, you know, I'm sick of men. Not necessarily that I wanted them to like go away or disappear or anything, but I, I did kind of get pulled into that side of feminism. And but it also didn't feel good to me either. So it was kind of just like I was frustrated, is what the best thing I could put. Cause you know, I was working in the early two late nineties, early two thousands. I was still dealing very much with stuff at work and being harassed. And mm-hmm. you know, I was in a very abusive relationship and the police did nothing, you know, and my family even blamed me for it, you know. So I was living oh, a very common well, it, it is, it sucks, but it's not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. And especially even with the native communities. Um, they have the same problems as everybody else. It's not it's not any different across for anybody across the world. Everybody goes right. through this. And I think our reaction initially was was to how do we make you know how do, it was always to control the women's behavior as opposed to how do we make men behave better and 
the way we make men behave better is we give them better, stronger role models, but especially women um, from the beginning. So that's part of, I think, also what the rematriation movement is about, too, is it's like, how do we raise children in a way that encourages them to embrace both the masculine and feminine energies? And how do we, you know, a woman leader is, doesn't take away your power as a man, you know, a woman right. leader in your community yeah. doesn't diminish your manliness or take away your machismo or whatever it is, you know, that's going on. Right. That you, right. So it's, those are, that's kind of where it starts. So that's and I, the idea. Yeah. yeah. And one of the extra things that, you know, native communities had to deal with, um, that was just sort of compounding, um, overcoming this, this, uh, machismo, this patriarchal sort of saturation of American culture is that, um, in order to have access to resources, and this is, you know, further back in the past, but in order to have access to resources, there was a certain amount of like, they, the U S would only deal with the men in the tribe They wouldn't deal with women. And so, you know, in order to even have a dialogue in order to to have people listen to you, um, to fight for your rights of necessity, the women's voices were silenced until, um, and that, that legacy as well is felt, you know, not only, uh, it's felt everywhere in the United States. I mean, women's, women's voices have been silenced by, by the last couple thousand years of history. I yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. So. When you talk about the Romans did the exact same thing when they would meet the Celts, they didn't, they could not understand that there would be women leaders and they would always try to contact the men. So yeah, it's just a, it's a patriarchal playbook. Yes. Uh, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Even, yeah. And, and only granting thing, you know, if, if aid was given out, it would only be given out to the quote unquote head of household, you know, the male head of household. So, yeah. So it, it, um, it undermined traditions, indigenous traditions of, of that balance of genders, you know, not that everyone was the same, but that everyone had a part to play. Absolutely. And I thank you for bringing that up. That is such a great historical pin I think that we need to just always keep in mind when we reference these things of like how did we get here yeah so because people tend to just get really angry and frustrated with each other like well it's you well it's you well it's something that's been going on for a long time (laughs) so yes it didn't just start you know a year five years ago whatever right right it didn't start in the 90s yeah right exactly so when I was in um when there's two really memorable moments for me when I was in Standing Rock because I did feel like this incredible loss that I can't really explain, but I felt it on such a deep level, especially when I was there because I, I was literally grieving the loss of my family's connection. And I'd never, I'd always felt it, but I'd never felt it like that because I was watching all of these tribes and all of these people and people my age and people older and younger than me who got to grow up with their entire tribal family and their connection to each other was incredible because tribal communities have just this incredible connection because they grow up as a community. It's literally the community, not you live in your house, you live in your house and we barbecue on Sundays Right. It's it's a community. it's a value to grow up as a community that is okay. part of the culture. Yeah. Exactly. And I and so watching that I was really grieving and one night I was sitting around a campfire and I I'm a very quiet shy person by nature. I have to really like give myself a pep talk to kind of put on my my extrovert mask and walk out and go just talk to people. And I can do it, but it <laughs> I was so insecure because I didn't have that connection back home other than the fact that I knew we were and just it was so humbling and I'm sitting around a campfire and I just tried to listen and just take in as much as I could and ask questions and just take the opportunity to learn as much as I could and speak very little and I was sitting around the campfire one night and people had kind of wandered off the music had ended the prayers had ended the dancing had ended 
And this older woman, she had to be in her late 70s. And her name was Verona. And I don't remember exactly what tribe she was from, but she was from somewhere up north near the Canadian border, but like Michigan or Wisconsin. And we were just chatting and she was lovely. And I truly believe that there was some sort of guiding force that brought us together because otherwise I can't imagine any other situation where she and I would have been in the same place alone around a campfire full of thousands and thousands of people. So we're just talking and I, I, she was really the first person I actually had a conversation with, like shared. And I told her, I said, I feel so lost here, but I also feel like I need to be here. And she said, she said, I, I feel that from a lot of young people here, but I'm glad you're here. It's really important. And we started, we started talking and I, and I just said, you know, my grandmother grew up in an orphanage. We're so disconnected. Um, and I feel like something's missing, but I don't know what it is. And we just started talking and then that led into other things. And she just gave me such beautiful sage grandmother wisdom. And she could just tell I was struggling internally mm-hmm. with some other issues and, we started talking about the balance of men and women and the role that men and women play in indigenous culture and his like going way, way back. You know, this isn't something that was necessarily taught. It was just the way it was. And the thing that stuck with me is she said, Kristen, women, whether anybody wants to ever admit it or not, women give everyone purpose and not in a sense of like, we dictate everybody's life like a puppet master. Mm-hmm. But we give men purpose because we give life. We also give them purpose, but it's our responsibility to to do that in the right way of not making them feel small, not making them think they're better than they should be, but giving them purpose in the sense that they are they are here to protect us and making them feel valued and all of the different beautiful gifts that they bring to this, to their life and to the earth. And uh, I am so sorry. My lawn guy just showed up. <laughs> <laughs> the outside world intrudes. I'm so sorry. I know. No worries. It's all right. Well, well it, it sounds just fine. No worries. It's, I mean, I, one of the things that's interesting hearing you talk about, and I think this is really beautiful to hear because from my standpoint, sometimes I hear people on outside discussing different communities, different um, people of different backgrounds, and talking about men and women in different communities. One thing that is often lost, again, is the is the fracture that occurs for both men and women in those communities, and the damage that had been done in terms of, well, as you say, for the purpose of the men in those communities, and then. And I, I'm just bringing it up because that's obviously going to be a personal connection to that. But the idea that when you when you have that sense that there's a purpose and that purpose is honored and it's honored for both is a really beautiful thing and it really heals. And I think the way you've put it, one, you know, I I wish more people could hear that phrasing of it because I think it would help many communities. Um, around the world because that's just something to be aware of that these outside factors have impacted both patriarchy. These patriarchal colonial notions have affected both genders in all these native communities. Yeah. Yeah. We say it all the time. Patriarchy hurts everyone. Yeah. And it's, it's important because sometimes I think, I mean, the reason I'm emphasizing sometimes I think outside fingers are pointed at, you know, these these people or these groups or these particular groupings, they do this or don't do that. And I think it's good to understand that when you heal both, when you, when you raise women's voices, you're healing both. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Maybe um, just uh, hear a little more about what that kind of cultural balance was discussed and, and how you find it actualized in the re- rematriation movement and what's going on in terms of your experience with it. Sure. So, that concept to me that women give men purpose is a lot of people have a really negative reaction to that because especially men because they're like well I don't well, women doesn't give me purpose I give myself purpose because I'm a man because it's my right to have a purpose or whatever you know but really if you really talk to them about it I think men are just as lost as women 
you know, when it comes to finding your purpose or feeling value or whatever. They're not any exception to it. They're just better at bolstering and peacocking. And, um, you know, I'm a man, so I'm not supposed to question anything. I'm supposed to know everything. Right. Um, but this movement is about the fact that women bring wisdom the same way that men can bring wisdom. But the wisdom of women is very different, but it's very needed because it's grounding and it's balancing. Whereas men tend to be more of like a fiery temperament. And really, maybe I should be talking about it more in like just masculine and feminine energies. Um, Cause I, women can have masculine energy and men can have feminine energy. So, um, but the idea is that you have the feminine energy, energy, which is very grounding. You know, it's, it kind of pulls you back to earth um, provides a foundation and then you have the masculine energy, which is more like fire and uh, productivity and protection and, and things like that. So finding that balance either through in yourself, but also in your community and through your partnerships and people that you invest your time in and your children and all of that is so important. And people tend to kind of just gravitate towards one or the other. But really, it's about finding the balance of those two energies through your community. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, in your experience with sort of jumping into various projects um, when you have the time, um, what have been your interactions with other women in Native movements? Um, tell us, tell us some, you know, personal stories, I guess, uh, whatever you want to share about the women you've met in this movement and um, how you've been able to work with them. Sure. I am incredibly inspired by what's coming and what, what people are doing now, especially women. Um, Cause like, I love that you brought that point up and that's something that I need to think about more when I talk about this is just historically women were silenced because in order to do a deal with the enemy, they weren't allowed, they weren't right. acknowledged. So um, finding a voice has been a common thread of like speaking up concisely, mm. clearly with, you know, like you, not like you're a guest at the table, but like you belong there. Mm. And that's something that I'm seeing happen more and more and more all across the world but I love seeing in native communities because it was, it was such a drastic change. I mean, it was literally 10 years ago, it didn't happen. And then now here we are and there's this incredible jump. So my experience, I've gone to several conferences. There's an incredible group of women in Oklahoma called, uh, they're part of a group called matriarch and it's headed up and kind of led by several women who hold leadership positions. Some of them are, uh, state representatives. Some of them are tribal, rep you know, leaderships in their hold leadership positions in their tribes, or they're just part of an influential family. And then there's women like me who sort of float around and aren't necessarily tied specifically to one group. Um, like my my family heritage is Choctaw and Cherokee. Um, I know who I know who they are. I know you know I know what happened to them now, um, but we were not up embedded in the community of those tribes specifically, even though I do have a lot of friends in both tribes. Mm -hmm. um, so these, so it, it is kind of a spectrum of women from all different backgrounds who grew up very, very much enmeshed in tribal culture, dancing tradition, and then women like me who have kind of come into it later in life. Um, there's even women who aren't necessarily native American, but they come from an indigenous background in Mexico or South America. Mm. So it's really um, an incredibly dynamic group of people. And they, and part of why I'm not more involved in them, I was actually invited to join their group, um, but they're pretty selective about being part of the group. And the only reason that is, is they want to, they want a commitment from you. They want a yes. commitment and they want you to really be involved. So I totally respect that. I didn't take it personally at all. Because uh, when we talked about it, they're like, well, you have to come to the meetings. Like, you have to be there. You can't. Right. You have to be present or else we're going to let, you know, we're going to give your spot to somebody else. So I completely understood. And I said, I'm here. If you, if there's something I can help you with, call me. 
I don't have the time. I travel too much for work. I can't be at every meeting. So there's a lot of groups like that. And I agree with them because in order to get things done, you have to have people committed. You know, they have to be able to put in the time. So in order to, yeah, in order to create that, that community, you have to show up, you have to be there in person, you know, it's, it's just the nature of the beast, unfortunately. Yeah, it is. And I, I think that's awesome though. Cause I, without people like that, we would all just end up as Facebook friends and check, you know, every couple of months or something, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. You really, there, there's a point where you just need to roll up your sleeves and dig in. Yeah, exactly. So there's groups like that all over the country and it's, it's incredible what they're getting done. They're helping women get elected to tribal positions. They're helping women get elected to state positions. They are helping women business owners, uh, they are helping women get out of domestic violence situations. They're also helping men get out of domestic violence situations because uh, women can be abusers too. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really incredible. And the one of my, my favorite groups that works in California, they're kind of sort of loosely connected with the Sequan tribe. Um mm-hmm. But they are just investing tons of money in tech education for tribal kids and really trying to bring technology into tribal communities so that there's opportunity going forward. What's the what's the name of that group? Because one of the things that was that I found was interesting when we met was when I came to the reservation, how many kids had already been into VR because obviously I came there showing VR and stuff. And there was a lot of already tech involvement. So what is the name of this group in California? Do you know if they're Northern or Southern California? It's Northern California. Well, there's like central California, but Mm -hmm. tribe, I can give you the contact information later, Sean, but it's, that'd be great. But there's tribes that connect and they have a conference every year called the women's indigenous women's conference or something like that. They do it at the Morongo casino in Southern California. Um, They do it every year and it's kind of geared towards the casino gaming industry. That's who a lot of the people that show up are, but it's really for anybody. And I've gone a couple of times and it is so incredible and it's a wonderful opportunity and it is a women's conference, but I'm always shocked by how many men are there and it is just so much fun and it's men who are super supportive of the, what's, you know, they understand the value mm-hmm. and the balance that women bring to homes and workplace environments and leadership. And so it's really cool. So that is happening all over the country. It's um, amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And I'm, I'm glad also you'd mentioned that um, the movements have been including uh, women from Mexico and South America, because I've always thought, you know, we forget about those native traditions and how they're really the cousins from the South. So it's, it's nice that that's being integrated. Yeah. And oh, absolutely. That's being connected. Absolutely. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that every group has the exact same ideals about things. You know, there's still groups, everybody has their own ideas about certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, some are more liberal minded. Some are maybe a little bit more conservative. Um, but one thing is that's a pretty typical thread among a lot of native traditions is when women go into ceremony, you're supposed to wear a skirt because you're embracing or whatever, whatever you identify with really. So if you're, if you identify with the feminine energy, you need to wear a skirt into ceremony um, or a shawl or something like that. Um, And it's not, it's not a, it's not a degrading thing. It's a acknowledgement of this is, this is who you are. And this is, the energy that you bring, whether you want to or not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there's so much power in that. And it it is, it does feel really good to embrace your, your power and your, your energy of, of what you bring to the table. Um, Feels good to really own that. So I, I kind of love that tradition because I always grew up in like blue jeans. I don't think, I think maybe 10 people have seen me in a dress my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I, I think about the difference between walking, walking as a woman into a cultural situation where only male values and male principles are respected. 
Right. And walking as a woman into a cultural situation where both the masculine and the feminine principles are valued. It's a completely different feeling. And I think a lot of us are used to living in this world where only the masculine principle is valued. So when you show up as a woman, you know, in all the accoutrement, it it's almost you are embracing what is not valued. Whereas if you walk into a situation where both the masculine and feminine are valued and you show up as a woman, then it is, it's a completely different energy exchange. I love the way you put that because that's what it is. It's an exchange of energy because we're both masculine and feminine. Yes, and all of us are. Yeah. Sometimes I'm more masculine, especially when I'm at work because I'm, I'm a CEO of a company. Do you think I walk into a room and pour everybody tea and sit down and, you know, take on, I mean, I, I do. And sometimes believe it or not, I used to not be like that. I was very much tried to keep up with the men, you know, and, and this has been so healing for me to learn and love and respect my feminine side because it is just as powerful. And in some ways I find much more wisdom from my feminine side, even though my, my masculine energy, I get a lot done, you know, I'm, it makes me, you know, it makes me more dynamic in some ways, but also having that grounding and that feminine wisdom is so incredibly balancing and helps to give me perspective in a way that my younger self didn't have. And so it is really important, I think, going forward for men and women to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, you are, if you're, you know, you're a masculine man, you are going to be drawn towards more towards masculine energy most of the time, but you still need to embrace that defined feminine energy that you do have. And maybe you express it through art or through the way you care for your children or, you know, the way you care for your spouse when she's sick and needs your help. Or, you know, there's so many different ways people can express that more loving, nurturing energy. Um, it's, I, I'm excited about seeing what's next because people are starting to really key into this. Um, the cultural, the, or excuse me, the generational divide. I don't know if it will always, <laughs> if it will go all the way up the generational chain, but at least for these younger generations, I definitely see um, a lot more balance, which I think is cool. Nice, nice. What's what's your hope, um, Kristen? I mean, just as we kind of sort of wind down, what's your hope for where this movement will go? And um, maybe, maybe, I don't want to say goals, but what, what would you like to see over the next, you know, five years or so through this decade? What are you hoping that you'll be able to see come from this movement? Uh, so I think the biggest thing, I, that's a great question, Sean. So I think the biggest thing I would like to see is one, I would love to see more people really invest in healing uh, their trauma and their generational trauma, uh, especially with the native communities. I think people are working towards that, but it hasn't quite gotten the attention I think it deserves. People are talking about it, but it hasn't quite gotten the move, like the action behind it yet, as far as addressing generational trauma and how it affects younger generations as well as um, our own personal trauma and how we manage conflict and how we manage um, things that make us uncomfortable and the bad things that have happened to us in our lives. Um, in, In native communities, there's still a lot of, you just don't talk about it. You don't, you know, you just don't deal and I, w- I do see that being kind of like maybe the next piece of this puzzle because I think people are finding out that you can't just jump to the 10th floor without mm. taking all of the steps one at a time. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. So I think everybody kind of reached that, like kind of hit that high where they were like, this is where we want to be. So let's just jump up there. And now they're realizing, oh, we can't sustain this until we kind of go back and work through the steps of how we got, how how do we get back up there to that space? Um, 
And you can't do that without healing and healing takes a really long time and everybody does it on their own time frame. So that's what I would like to see more of is see more emphasis, not necessarily on victimhood. Um, I don't want people to be victims. I want to be really clear about that Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, everybody's their own hero. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to put it. Uh, yeah. I mean, there'd be people, ideally, you do have community and people that will support you and help you. But at the end of the day, no one's coming. You know, it's it's just up to you to heal yourself and work on your own, your own life. And so I would like to see more of that kind of accountability of, a, you know, dealing with that kind of stuff. So we can move forward as a community. We can yeah. move forward uh, with these incredible traditions and things like that. So this is a, it's, it's so nuanced and there's so much to talk about when it comes to this, that I hope I was concise and clear. (laughs) It's been been wonderful. It's been wonderful to hear. It's wonderful to kind of reconnect about this too. So thank you very much for this. Thank you so much for this. Is there anything, anything you want to leave everybody with or? No, I just want to thank you guys for doing this. What an what a cool, amazing project and talking about things that sometimes make people a little uncomfortable and but it's so important. Uh, this is very cool. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really grateful. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, so this has been the 34 Circe Salon. We've been talking to Kristen McCormick about the repatriation movement and women in native culture. Uh, Dawn Sam Alden, thank you uh, for suggesting uh, this conversation. Absolutely. And for being part of this. And well, thank, uh, thank you. Thank you all for listening. We will be back again very soon. Take care. Take care, everyone, and blessed be.